welcome back to the Learning Man Podcast. My name is Omar Cantu. I am your host. And today, we're going to be speaking to Leroy the Machine Walker. Leroy is literally one of the strongest men on the planet. He currently holds the world record for strict curl, and he's one of the top 10 strongest men in bench press. But he is more than just that. If you uh, dig deep enough, he is a wealth of knowledge. He's intelligent. He's eloquent. You know, he's pretty much a big teddy bear once you get to know him. He's got so many nuggets of wisdom, and he also talks about the traumatic events of abuse that he went through that kind of launched his career. You're not going to want to miss this one. This is The Learning Man. And welcome back to The Learning Man. My name is Omar Cantu. I am your host on this journey. And uh, I am super excited to uh, have on the show today, literally one of the strongest men in the world. Um, he is, uh, he's known as the machine. He is, uh, he currently holds, uh, he's in the top 10 for bench press. Uh, he benches 675 pounds. Um, he is, uh, in the strict, what is it? Strict curl. He, he actually holds the record for that. Um, he is, he is a mountain of a man and a incredible human being. Um, please welcome Leroy, the machine Walker. Thank you for having me here today. Yeah. Thank you so much for making time for me. And, uh, and, uh, I'm so, I am super excited to have you on the show specifically because, um, I had an opportunity to listen to you on another podcast. Um, truthfully, I was producing that podcast for, uh, Mr. Mark Springer, who, um, who's with, uh, Avatar Nutrition. Couldn't give them a, a little plug here. And, um, I, you know, during that, that particular podcast, this is months ago that we, mm-hmm. we recorded that, um, you went a little, you, you dug deep and you started sharing some really personal experiences. And, um, I felt like you would be a perfect fit for this podcast because what we do here is we kind of dig deep and um you know share personal stories the stories that we were taught not to share when we were you know young men and stories that we don't often feel comfortable talking about today um and I wanted to kind of dig deep into your childhood and uh and 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 dig deep into some of the the decisions that you made along the way to to become the man that you are today. Mm-hmm. So, with that, um, do you feel do you want to do you want to talk a little bit about your upbringing and yeah, and my what? upgrade. Um, I would say <clears throat> for the most part, uh, pretty normal childhood. Um, in the in the sense that you know, raised by my mom, I think I, to me that seems normal. I guess from a definitional standpoint, a lot of people would say it's abnormal to just be raised, you know, a single parent household. But I think, you know, the stats and the numbers, you know, reflect that a, a huge majority of the population probably comes comes up with that type of upbringing. So to me, it didn't feel abnormal, you know, having the absentee um, father. I did have a stepfather. And I think, you know, going up through adolescence, that's kind of where things changed is as men, we look back and we want that, you know, kind of father figure. And and I'll say this time and time again, I think I had really good examples of who I wanted to be like and what I absolutely never wanted to become. <clears throat> so the beginning part of that, I had great guidance from, you know, my grandfather and from my, from my uncle, who was an amateur bodybuilder. And that's kind of where the weightlifting journey and, you know, the athletic part of it started. But as far as the the role model, I never really had a, a, a father figure that was a role model. I had a, a stepfather that was a, a role example of everything I did not want to be like in life. And I knew this from early on. I saw the interaction between his self and my mom. It was very abusive, both uh, physically and emotionally. He was a very um, abrasive verbally. Um, but more so, it was just a lot of it came from his dependency on alcohol and substance abuse. And so I, you know, time and time again, whether it was um, just abusiveness towards uh, my mom, towards my brother, um, I was a little bit bigger. 
than the average 13 year old. And, and I started to embark. I feel that. Yeah. That that's wanting to become stronger to avoid those abusive situations. Um, and that's kind of where the powerlifting, it's kind of where the journey started is I, I didn't have, I wanted to be nothing like him. I wanted to avoid the abuse and I wanted to be a protector to my younger brother and to my mom. So, um, I think I, I had recalled the story where he had come home one night just after, you know, just right. a night full of drinking and just uh, went to town with a belt, just beating, just beating the crap out of my mom, out of my little brother who was, you know, I mean, he was a, like, he must have been eight or nine at the time, mm-hmm. you know, and just, I mean, he's a kid. I, I'm not going to sit here and justify like, oh, he couldn't fight back. I mean, he's a kid. He shouldn't even be in that situation. But it is what it is, and I just remember trying to keep the door shut and keep them from coming in. And and I always say that was the first epic powerlifting, you know, battle I lost. Trying to bench press or trying to press the door to keep them from coming in, and ended up, you know, just taking uh, ass open that night. And I just, I just vowed to myself never again did I want to go through this or feel this. So it was kind of one of those, you know, lose the battle, win the war. I lost that battle, but ultimately it gave me the courage to reach out to my uncle and say, hey, I can't keep going through this. I got to get stronger, you know, physically, uh, mentally, you know, but I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say at the age of, you know, 12 years old, I was like, oh, I need to get mentally stronger. I just, I just don't want to get the shit kicked out of me no more. Right. You know? So that's kind of where the, the journey to become a stronger young man started. Interesting. And so, and you were around 12 years old at that time. Yeah, I was around 12. I remember it was like junior high. So 12, 13, you know. So what happened? What happened after that? <clears throat> um, my my uncle took me under his wing, started going to the gym, and you know, kind of moved around from you know different house to different house. Uh, we kind of lived, you know, kind of like uh, gypsies or whatnot. We just constantly moved, and so I think later on, like I think around my junior year, um. I just, I needed a break. So my mom's like, hey, if, if you think it's better. If, we, always, we always sometimes think the grass is greener on the other side, especially right. when you grew up in one household. So she had said, hey, if you think it's greener on the other side, go try living with your dad, which was a whole nother set of disasters. I mean, not the abuse, but just the, just the, he was a very absentee father. I mean, there was a reason why the marriage didn't work out. And But what I did take away from that, making a positive out of it is, uh, growing up on an Air Force base, you're able to get access to the gym. So I would actually have to sneak on because I, I think at the time I was only 16 and you had to be 18 or older. So I'd kind of sneak in the the base gym and it was me just surrounded by all men. These were grown, you know, men in the Air grown Force. Grown ass men. Yeah, grown ass men. So it was one of those things like, one, I didn't want to get my cover blown that I wasn't supposed to be working out there, you know, but two, I, I had to keep up. So it forced me to get stronger very fast, you know, and I learned how to work out sets, reps and whatnot, work ethic. And, I, and I'm, I'm thankful for that opportunity. And, and that's the underlying message is no matter what you're going through, you can always find a silver lining. You can always find a, a purpose. You can always find your why. And you just got to be able to persevere and just know that it, it's going to get better before it gets worse in most of the cases. And you know, you just learn to kind of make the best of the situation. And that's and that's really how the the powerlifting side of it kind of started. Interesting. Did you have, I mean, you know, I think we have some very similar upbringing in terms of, you know, kind of struggling through um, – different forms of abuse and and things like that. And, um, in terms of, in terms of, uh, and, and also having kind of like, you know, because my, my, my parents, um, they, they, they were, you know, they were both together. Um, they never divorced. Um, and I recently actually lost my dad in September and, uh, and that has also kind of forced me to kind of like take a look at at my upbringing and, and also come to terms with a lot of things. And, um, one of those things was, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of phys- physical abuse, you know, like he used to, he used to whoop me pretty bad, you know, growing up. And, um, you know, I growing up, I 
always kind of looked for like that father figure, kind of that that positive father figure, that role model, that mentor. Um, and it kind of, I mean, was there anybody that you kind of felt like you kind of leaned on or looked, I mean, you mentioned your grandfather and everything. And for me, it was my grandfather as well. That was kind of like the, the biggest, um, male figure in my life. Um, was there anybody that kind of like really impacted you and, and how? Mm, I would say, I think that's kind of where I started to be kind of be, um, first feel, I guess, feel normal or accepted was I probably in the, the sports, the athletic world, because mm -hmm. a lot of, if you ask me, you know, to answer the question, I think a lot of coaches, I think I had a lot of really good mentors and good coaches, whether it was wrestling, um, football, baseball, um, you know, PE, weightlifting in high school. I had a, a lot of really good mentors, people that I looked up to, knowing that I necessarily, I mean, it was one of those things growing up. In the 80s and 90s, you know, it's kind of like you don't really talk about it. So it wasn't like it was never going to be this ABC after school special like, hey, coach, let me put my arm around you. Let's let's right. share a soda and talk. And right. or, you know, I was never I mean, we we did fun, you know, dynamic stuff as a team, you know, go out to your pizza mm -hmm. parties. But it was never like one of those one on one. We're going to go to Starbucks and talk this out. Right. It, it wasn't like and I'm, and I'm not. I'm saying it, you know, in in all fairness, you know, lightheartedly. I was never, I never would have been. I'm like, hey, let's go to Starbucks. I don't, I don't drink coffee or tea or any of that stuff. So, but I'm not, I'm not knocking it. It just back in my in my day, that just wasn't gonna happen. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And and nowadays, I don't know if it happened because, you know, just the times we live in. If you had a coach that would say, hey, you want to go talk about it, people would probably right. think like, oh, there's something weird going on there. Right. You know? It's and, not uh, the manly thing. Yeah, the, it's not the, the manly the, thing. Yeah. But um, yeah, just a lot of a lot of good coaches, a lot of good, you know, father figure types, you know, mm -hmm. that that I could take the good and the bad. I'm not saying I liked all my coaches. I'm not saying they all gave the best advice, but for the most part, that was a it was a good foundational stepping stone to have life lessons, mm -hmm. you know, that I could pass that I could learn and, you know, also pass on as I, I later became a coach and I coach people now. Interesting. That's really cool. And so you've kind of, you've kind of like stepped up into that role essentially. I, I think, I think we all do, you know, I think everybody does, whether you want to think you are or not. I think everybody kind of takes on this ability to, to, you know, we all got to heal and it starts someplace. I think most of the time the healing's going to come in the form of, you know, just at first accepting, you know, that certain things weren't your fault, certain things you know, you can put yourself in better, uh, make better choices and, and, you know, come away with, and have better decisions. But ultimately, I think we all got to find the solution to the age-old problem is um, <clears throat> what are we battling and how do we get past it? What worked for us? You know, what worked for us? And then I think it's our job as men and as mentors to pass it on. You know, I think you're kind of it, like right now, we're sharing this, and I think that's part of the healing process. It's part of the growing process, and it's part of also what makes us stronger. So much of the strengths that I'm experiencing now in my 40s are coming in the way of just passing on knowledge, mm -hmm. not just hoarding it, not just being able to you know speak my truth. It doesn't have to be. I'm not going to say everything I've done in life. This is the ABC book on how if you do this, this, and this, you're going to get this result. But I think there's things that I've done that I would hope I could pass on and teach so other people don't have to go through or make the same mistakes. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if you do, whether it's the good or the bad, I think you have to own them because that's part of the foundation of who you are. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I think if you, and you ask, I think if you ask most successful people, you know, you always hear this, if you could go back, what would you change? And most people I think are going to say nothing because you learn from it, you grow from it. And that, and I think that's a sign of successful people because if you look at someone that's not successful, they're going to have a life and their stories are going to be riddled with regret, with blame, with not being able to accept, you know, their shortcomings. So I'm not going to sit here and say that everything has been picture, right. per, you know, picturesque because I've had some shortcomings that were mindful. Sometimes the biggest lesson we have to learn is to get out of our own way. You know, to not have a limiting belief system that's not going to allow us to become something. It's easy 
to come from a broken home and say, oh, I'm not going to be able to come become this. Like in your situation, oh, I'm, I'm not going to be able to be a good father because I didn't have that. Right. We see countless, countless men use that excuse. But then you see other people that have the same background and they thrive from it. Right. You can either let it be, you know, this, this cement, you know, block that's just going to weigh you down. Or you can use the same fundamental truth and let it be this it, this gasoline, this fuel that's going to ignite your engine and just let you just take off to new, you know, levels, to new places, uncharted territory, places you thought you were never going to be go, go because you didn't adopt this limited belief system. That's, that's really a, a very wise approach. I think that's great. Did you, did you ever have, um, did you ever have like, so for instance, when I was, um, you know, I've all like, like you, right. I've always been a big kid. Right. And like, like we, I was, I, I don't know if you've had a shared experience, like, uh, you know, having to go to Sears to go buy the Husky jeans. Yeah. The Husky jeans, the yeah. corduroys that would just kind of like, yeah. <coughs> oh man, it was the worst. Want? And they only lasted the like two months. Cause you had giant thighs. Right. Like, yeah. 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 I never got, I never got picked to play soccer because my mom was, uh, she be- she believed in sturdy, rugged clothing and shoes. I had those. Uh, I don't know if you remember. You like the, I had the wall. Everybody else had Nikes and Converse. I had the yeah. waffle stoppers. Yeah, they lasted. You know, the I looked like a, a lumberjack. Yeah, you know, with the red laces and whatnot. But you know, you, you learn you learn to make do with what you have. Yeah, yeah, similar, similar, totally similar upbringing. I used to wear the rustler jeans. When I was growing up, you know, and um, so, you know, and, and I, you know, I've always been a big kid. Um, and, um, you know, one of the things that kind of like sticks out in my mind is when I was in fifth grade, we had a new AD, mm-hmm. uh, athletic director, and he came in and he was also um, he was kind of like scouting. He wanted to build a system of football and in, in, in our town and um I guess he kind of scouted me out and saw that I was a bigger kid. And so he put me into like summer workout programs, like when I was in fifth grade, Mm -hmm. starting lifting and stuff like that. Now, did you ever have like a coach that kind of like scouted you out and kind of like wanted to develop you and wanted to be kind of like that positive, like fit, like from a physical fitness standpoint, that, that role model kind of, kind of type person? Um, not, not well. I mean, you'd have people that would tell you, that, "Hey, you need to play this or play that." Not really scouted out, but I had a lot of that. We had a lot of that growing up. You know, I think I think it was one of those growing up. You either you were either smart and you gravitated towards you know studying more, or you were just kind of athletic. I mean, there was a lot of these. There was a lot of that were both, but I think um, athletics were were really pushed. You know, we had dare, we had after school programs mm-hmm. and whatnot. But yeah, athletics was always something that I could lean on. As something that was positive. When you kind of took it on your, took it upon yourself to kind of like get into the gym too, which is, yeah, for, yeah, we didn't have. I mean, our, I grew up in a small town. We didn't have uh, till this day. I, I think maybe they might have a gym now, but we didn't have mm-hmm. like an LA Fitness. We didn't have a um, you know a twenty four hour or a lifetime fitness. We didn't have any of that. We just had, you know, there there was a gym that I went to. I remember. Um, and it was like it was. I think it was called like Pack West or something. It was, mm-hmm. you know, Pacific Northwest. It was this huge commercial gym. That, I mean, they had pool, they had ragged, they had everything. And I just went there. I thought it was like Disneyland. All I just saw is these people, just big, small, muscular. You know, sweat. It was like you know, and I was just like, man, I want to be a part of this and stuff like that. But I think I think the biggest thing that I had to overcome um, is the limiting belief. It just is, I think just what a lot of people do, just growing up poor. Because I remember it was just everything, you know, just everything, just not saying it doesn't now, but back then it cost. And so I always equated not having something with not being good enough. You know, if I, I think, didn't have, I think the majority yeah. of us do that. And uh, and so it was one of those things. I just, I remember like growing up a couple places. Like I remember Costco. Yeah. I remember, uh, you know, going to a, a huge gym like that. I was like, if you weren't going there, it's because you were poor. It's not because yeah. not because your city or town didn't have one or your parents didn't want you to. It's just we're just poor. We don't do that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. So that was a very limiting belief um, that I had all throughout. You know, it, 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 it kind of dissipated during high school because we did have a weight room and stuff like that. And then college, we had a weight room. But I, I remember I, I don't think – 
I think one of my first proud moments was when I was, you know, on my own after, you know, graduating college, like 23, 24, like Mm -hmm. having my own gym membership and having a Costco card. I was like, you know what? I've made it. I've made it. I've made it, you know? And and it's just funny, like how throughout time, you know, our, our belief systems, you know, change and overcome and how we look at things in our forties isn't the same. Mm -hmm. We looked at things in our twenties and what we hold near and dear and, you know, we value. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> and so, like, um, where, where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in a, in a small town called uh, Yelm, Washington. Oh, uh, Washington. Right, yeah, right, okay. out, right outside of uh, Olympia. Okay. You know, about twenty minutes away from Olympia. Okay. And then, how, so what was that? What was that town like? I mean, you're was it primary? I, I'm, I'm assuming you know, predominantly white. Yeah, it was, it was, it was very white. Predominantly white. There was, I think, like a Native American reservation not too far away. Um, you know, you had some, some sprinkled in, maybe a couple of Asian kids, maybe a couple, uh, Latin or Mexican American, a couple of black kids. So it was definitely growing up in the minority, but it wasn't like, how do I say? It wasn't like, like what you'd hear about the South. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It wasn't like, it wasn't like you, we had different colored water fountains or any of that stuff, or like there was the clan or anything we had to worry about. And, um, and that actually didn't, it was kind of like, you don't. I think growing up as, you know, a biracial kid or in a town where you are a minority, it doesn't really hit you the same as it does, like, when I first went to college. When I first went to college, I went to a, a junior college in Arizona, and it was kind of like a, a many a first. It was the first time being on a you know, athletic team, a football team that was really diverse, but it was the first time I really dealt with um, kind of just racial tension from you know from different sides you know what i mean it was interesting in the the sense it was the time when the oj it was arizona was different at the time i don't know how much it changed out but they didn't recognize martin luther king day and there was a huge divide on yeah it was a huge divide because the campus let's say let's say the campus had five thousand people probably four thousand five hundred were probably white you know, and then the other was just Mexican and black. And, mo- and the funny thing, when I say the racial tension, most of the African-Americans on campus either played football or basketball. And of that, majority of those people, of those guys, were from the South. So there was a deep-rooted sense of black versus white and then black versus biracial. I, I, I had, I, I was catching like, somewhat racial tension or bigotry from not only the whites on campus, but from, you know, other blacks with myself being, you know, biracial, like, mm-hmm. you know, you're, and you're, you're yeah, black and Italian, black and Italian. Yeah. Okay. So it's, and it's, it's different, you know, the way the the South versus the West coast get along, or the South versus the North, you know, there's different ideologies. There's different way people view stuff, you know, the, I mean, Growing up biracial and and then you know living in California for a little bit, it's it's the the overtones aren't the same. It's not you don't society doesn't react the same to a biracial child or a a mixed couple the same as it is in the South. It's almost like you stick to your own, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was it was different for me to encounter that, especially in an institutional setting of you know, college where, you, you know, it's higher learning. It's it's like you learn to, like, dispel or, you know, just different belief systems to break away from different stereotypes. So to come into an institution where there was obviously certain um, ideologies or principles that were accepted or not accepted, you know, or limited belief systems, it was it was fundamentally, I thought it would be less of a divide. And, it's, and I felt like, in some senses, I was going back in time because I went, whether it was California, Washington, just on the West Coast, it, it was kind of, I guess, more relaxed, mm-hmm. you know, for, for you know, whether it was dating or just friends, you mm-hmm. know what I mean, to be kind of intermixed. Plus, I mean, coming from a small town, I mean, you, I guess, up, I mean, was it, was, Growing up in a small town like that, was it, was it, I mean, was there, I mean, obviously there's not going to be like as much, there's not going to be segregation and things like that, but it was, was it still like racially charged? Like during, you know, up in Washington, like during that, that period of time, uh, like, did you feel, did you ever feel like, 
No, I, I, like, I did you always feel like aware that you were biracial or, uh, or were you treated a, like a black kid or were you treated like, um, I think it, I think it was a kind of like in the '90s. It was kind of going through a generation. I think I think as a country, and I think I can attest, it was kind of going through. I think we were going through general generational changes. It was uh, almost like I think even now we've learned. You you see the walls and the barriers start to come down slowly, but surely. And and I think one of the first areas that we see this in is. Um, sports mm -hmm. and i think we see it in kind of like you know show business whether it's movies or music you know and when i was growing up you know at that time it was like snoop and dr dre and, and hip-hop was really mm -hmm. coming into its own you know as far as being really mtv kind of mainstream so there was a lot of it there was a lot of social acceptance you know there's both stereotypes but there was both a lot of acceptance you know what i mean and same with same with um you know, you had the Michael Jordans, you had the Ken Griffey Jr. So mm -hmm. from from the athlete, from the icon standpoint, you know, it wasn't just black kids that, you know, that loved Michael Jordan or, you know, and Ken Griffey Jr., a lot of athletes. A lot of these people were just celebrated by everybody. So I think as a country, that's where a lot of the tension started to slowly display. I'm not saying we're there, but right. I think, you know, in the 90s. Uh, with both MTV, you know, and other and other, you know, different types of outlet media outlets, it was becoming more the norm. It was becoming more accepted. It was it was it was start. You started to see the shift. Like, why would you not like that group of people? Why mm -hmm. would you not like this? But there, there, I mean, there was also certain, you know, stereotypes too. Like, okay, you people should dress like this, or you, you know. Mm -hmm. So there there was still some of that, but it was slowly starting to fade. So coming from. You know, a smaller town, I, I think the whole country was kind of going through the same thing. So it didn't really matter where you were, at least on the West Coast, it didn't, maybe in the South. Right. It was, and, but, but what I'm seeing now is, you know, coming from the West Coast, even in Texas, is something I, I don't think nowadays, I don't think it's as racial as I think it's. And, th and this also comes from, you know, higher learning and, and stuff like that. But I think now I think it's more socioeconomical. Now I think. Like yeah, South. So people ask me, oh, what's it like racially in, in Southern California? I mean, there's still a racial divide. There's still neighborhoods, but it's more, you know, and even in the South, even in Texas, or you go to Florida, or you go to Louisiana, it's more classist. You know, you have poor whites and blacks have more in common with each other than they do rich whites or rich right. blacks. You know, right. based it's more like California. It's really based on your area code because mm -hmm. it's not segregated like it was in the '50s and '60s. Interesting. Okay. <clears throat> so then in terms of, so. And that, and that, but, to, to make the point, that's kind of what I experienced in college, you know, because you, because it wasn't, it wasn't really blacks versus whites. It was as an athlete, you know, it was kind of like, yeah, I was an athlete, but, um, you know, in high school, my mom passed away. So I went to live with one of my best friends and, and his family was white. And we lived on an airport. So, I mean, they had his dad work for Boeing. The mom was a school teacher. So, I mean, in a nutshell, they came from money. So, so my junior and senior year, that was my family. That was my tribe. That's what I identified with. And when I went to school, that's where you know, it was kind of murky because I wasn't just an athlete. You know, I was educated. I wasn't just, I, I came from you know, a family that had money, although they didn't pay my way for college, I still knew what it was to come from money versus to be so dependent on being an athlete or that scholarship or coming, you know, being broke. I guess coming from money in college has its, you know, it has its, I want to say it has its privileges. Some people might call it entitlements, but you kind of like, you kind of have a better sense of, you know, your worth, you know, what you should and shouldn't stand for, except versus if you're poor and you're just kind of in school on scholarship, you feel you're 100% at the mercy of, of being, you know, of, of at the school, of, of at the school, yeah. or, or you're you're just and and, and and it is there's overtone the teachers, the faculty, um, the way you're treated, it's kind of like, hey, buddy, you're here because you're an athlete, you know, mm -hmm. no more, no less. And some people thrive, some people can't overcome that, you know. So I think it goes. And it's a reflection of your upbringing. You know, what are your values? What are you taught to value? What will you accept? What will you stand for? And, and I think that's um, so much a part of 
what higher learning is about is what is not just what's put before you. What do you, how do you respond to it and what do you take away from it? Mm -hmm. That's great. And so when you, when you went into, when you went to school in Arizona, Mm -hmm. um, you, you mentioned kind of like kind of being in kind of like in a gray area, right? Cause you were, you essentially, you, you were a student athlete. I left. Oh, really? I left, you know, and, and I mean, to kind of get in front of what you're saying, I left. I didn't because buy. Of that? Well, because here's what it was. Because you you were kind of like in a gray area yeah. where you you didn't feel like you were black enough, and exactly. then you weren't white enough. So you were kind of like in this limbo area where it was, and and, and I was I was fortunate enough to be able, I think, to navigate and see through that um, because because I didn't want to be seen. It, to me, if being seen as black enough or being athletic enough was justification for me to only be in school, I didn't want that. And I didn't want people to see me as not being smart enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, and that was well, that's one of the, the areas where I first really, I mean, to speak to what you're saying, I really felt awkward because I came from, a, a you know, um, I, I had a great education. My high school, the high school system in Washington uh, is very, um, they have a lot of Excel programs, a lot of higher, you know, upper division and stuff like that, or college prep. And so, um, you know, when you go, when you go to a junior college or you go to a smaller school and it's not, when it's not based all on the SATs, uh, I think almost every freshman goes that you have your placement exams. And so I placed into college over everything, which is funny because a lot of a lot of people, whether it's their education or athletes, whatever you want to call it, don't place a lot. Of, there's a lot of freshmen in some curriculums that get stuck taking um, I'm not, in remedial, you know, that are mm-hmm. or, you know, English 98 or 95. When it, you know, it's a, it's a step before English 101 or 1A. It's, it's preparatory for college level mm-hmm. and it counts as far as. Your enrollment it counts as far as you know your your like your twelve units you need to be considered you know full time, but it doesn't count towards any of your graduation curriculum. Mm-hmm. So I tested in, and a lot of athletes didn't. I tested into one hundred and one, and all college level everything. And you a know, lot of the other student athletes were forced to to take yeah, that. Yeah, they took the no, they took the remedial, and I got a right the remedial. I got a lot of flat. I got flack from. From both, oh, you think you're too good or you're too smart. And, the, and then where it really started to mess with me was from the coaches. They're like, hey, why are you not taking this? Why are you taking English 101? It meets from, you know, 2.30 to 3.30. It's going to cut into practice time. I'm like, because uh, I had late registration because I'm an athlete, but that's the class I have to take. Well, why don't you just take remedial? Why would I take remedial? That's that's a whole that semester no of sense. work. That yeah. makes no sense to me. So – True story. I I I, uh, I transferred. I transferred to my aunt and uncle. My mom had passed away at the time. I had an aunt and uncle, uh, uncle from my dad's side, that you know I I had a good relationship with. So I tra- I, I left um, Arizona and went to go live with that family. You know um, to finish out my education because I I was like, I mean, I kid you not. One of the classes was like basket weaving. You know they joke underwater. It wasn't underwater, underwater basket. Weaving. No, but it was basket weaving. <laughs> Tennis, you know, you name it. As long as you were eligible, like, man, they do you, does it look no. like I want to play tennis? <laughs> yeah, no, but but I did. They they enrolled me yeah. in tennis because it was one of my PE thing. Besides, because you needed football and you needed one other PE class or something, you know, and to help stay eligible. So I was like, I'm fucking take. What am I taking tennis for? Mm-hmm. You know, what am I taking this for? Um, and so I was like. This program doesn't give a shit if I graduate. They don't care if I get a degree. They don't care if I transfer. So I was like, I can't be here. You know, so I, wow. I, I stayed there one semester and I left. Wow. Where'd you go to? I transferred to, uh, it was called Sierra College. I ended up getting my AA, my associates in arts from, you know, Sierra College, uh, taking all my, my pre under or my under division mm-hmm. and then transferred to a four-year school, uh, Whittier College, graduated Mm-hmm. With a political science degree and a minor in history from there. Oh, nice! You're yeah. a minor in history. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fellow historian. I like yeah. that. Yeah. But it, it was it was scary, and it's one of those things. I think early on, I just had to have a belief in myself because mm-hmm. I I was the first in my my family to go to college. 
I had no backing from my parents financially. Mm-hmm. You know, I was kind of on my own. I had a marriage scholarship um, that helped me pay for out of state tuition. Um, but other than that, it was just, I just kind of had this chip on my shoulder because my whole life, you're, excuse me, you're never going to go to college. You're, you're never going to be good enough. You're never going to be this, that, and that, the other. And then once I got there, I, I didn't have, you know, like some of the other, especially when I went to Whittier, it was a private school. I think it was like liberal, private liberal arts school. It was like 40 plus thousand a year. So I had to take out loans. But at the, it was the but I saw all these other kids and I joke around until this day, they're trust fund kids, you know, they mm-hmm. grew up, you know, private piano, tennis lessons, all this. And, and if college wasn't the thing for them, that was okay because they had mommy and daddy to bail them out. Right. I didn't have that. I was like, you it's know, do or die. It was do or die. It was like if I can't if I can't balance all this and get, you know, work study and a part time job, I'm I'm broke. I'm you know, I'm out of this. Mm-hmm. And so it, I took on adopted this mentality early on that failure wasn't an option. Because for me it really wasn't. Wow. And so so after college, how did you kind of like I guess what happened? like because you were lifting during the entire time, right? Like you yeah. lifted your entire life. Yeah. And then how did that kind of like transition into you doing it as, you know, professionally? Um, it was just, well, obviously, I mean, we're not talking about my NFL career. So the NFL didn't happen, but the weightlifting and the, and the things that were, the things that were instilled upon me from my uncle, from my coaches early on in life stuck with me. The work ethic, the determination to always get better, to always push the envelope and the competitiveness from athletics that stuck with me and then i I think you know kind of like growing up as a chubby kid you kind of want to you kind of want to emulate or you want you you resonate to what you want to become you know what i mean and so i was like when you're not fit you look at you know bodybuilding like oh i want to be this i want to be that so you always try to aspire to get there and then whatever's going to hold you back is going to hold you back whether it's you can't make the diet the workouts, whatever the case was. For me, I, I hated the diet aspect of bodybuilding. Um, mm-hmm. So I was like, hey, you know what? I, I can't get cut up like Arnold Schwarzenegger, but I can be stronger. So the competitiveness, the lessons I learned, and just the wanting to stay involved athletically. And then I learned, you know, you can compete on your own. You can be your own team. So powerless. So that's kind of where that journey started. But I think the other lesson I learned is is the, the lesson on fundamentally of giving back. And it kind of coincided with something I think a lot of people talk about more and more today is becoming, and I saw the quote you guys had on your wall, become, be the person you would want to interview, you know, be the person you would want to meet, become the person that you needed when you were a young adolescent going through your highs and more so going through your lows. So to me, I grew up without not, I mean, football side, I didn't have a lot of great coaches. So naturally I was like, man, I wish I would have had a coach like this in high Mm -hmm. school. So that's what I wanted to become. So my first coaching job was I went back and I did strength and conditioning and coaching for Whittier High School, which was right down the street from where I graduated. So Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, you know, you always hear about it. You know, you got to give back. You got to give back. So that's, so that's kind of where that journey as far as as coach and the transfer of knowledge and the taking what I needed when I was younger to, I needed to, and wanted, I had this fulfilling um, sense of urgency to give that back in a positive way. So that's kind of where both the powerlifting and the coaching and giving back got started. Wow. Okay. And so did you kind of like, um, so now what do you, what do you, what do you do for work? I mean, are, 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 are you just lifting all the time? No, not lifting all the time. Just more, just personal trainer and personal stuff like trainer. that. Yeah. Consultant. Still, still cult, but yeah. coaching. Mm-hmm. And you, uh, that's over at Big Techs, correct? Yeah, Big Techs. That's cool. How does, uh, I know that you kind of mentioned that with, uh, with Mark, but, you know, for the listeners at, at, uh, that are listening to the podcast, um, Big Techs is kind of like the premier, like heavy lifting facility in in austin right yeah it's kind of it's it's i would say it's the premiere for both bodybuilding and powerlifting and strongman but uh, as it pertains to especially to this conversation and the premise of how i met mark is uh we all i think share the similar kind of background we all you know we're athletic we wanted to extend it um and so but it also is this place where 
it's more, and I, I don't think big text gets enough notoriety that it's more of a place that's also a meeting of the minds. It's also a place where people are able to express themselves to become that coach or that mentor that someone mm-hmm. else needed, that people really, you know, reach out. And it's so much more cerebral, so much more. And I and I say this because it's the last couple um, weeks, the last, I'd say, couple months, really, when especially, I mean, it, it puts a smile on my face and say, oh, I love your content. And to me, I kind of look at, like, my content and my social media is kind of more of a a video journal dial mm-hmm. of what's been going on. And I've noticed, life, yeah. I've noticed as I get away from powerlifting and doing stuff that's more kind of empowering to me, it's not so much really about the numbers as much as it is just about, you know, the continuous, the, the grind, the, the going to the gym when you don't want to. But I've noticed lately at, at 45, this shift over, I'd say the last 10 years, as I become more um, enlightened and self-aware of things that I have truths and dynamics that I need to share, I have this lesson, uh, this lesson need for wanting to necessarily compete. Mm-hmm. And I think early on in my career, so much of it was just whether you want to call it pent up fr- frustration not wanting to be aggressive towards, you know, fellow man. I mean, you hear a lot of people, oh, if I didn't lift weights, I'd just go around just killing people. I'm I'm not going to be that person. Although right. I, I, I've been labeled, you know, I have memes, oh, this guy's a serial killer. I mean, by any sense of means, that will never be me. Nor would I ever, you know, resort to physical violence to let it become a manifestation of what I'm feeling inside. But I, I do notice the correlation as I get older, as when I was young, and didn't necessarily have an outlet, you know, verbally or expressive to like really get some stuff off my chest or mm-hmm. go to counseling, work some shit off. I was like, I need to set this record. I need to lift this much. All this stuff was just really a need to validate all this shit that I was hiding from that I didn't want to face up. I didn't want to mm-hmm. talk about and face the mental abuse, the physical abuse. Yeah. The growing up biracial, the not being able to feel like I identify with this, the growing up poor. So I just took all this frustration and it manifested in fucking record after record after record Mm -hmm. after record. And it's funny because now I'm like that I've had better people come into my life. Um, You know, my girlfriend that I'm thankful for, friends that I've met along the way, you know, coaches, gym owners, people like yourself, people like Mark. The more people and the bigger my network and community and tribe gets that I'm able to become expressive mm-hmm. in other ways than physical, the the records and the need to compete and to lift all this crazy amount of weight, it kind of dissipates. Do I miss it? Do I love it? Yes. But I don't feel that's how I need to identify myself or have this stuff manifest, you know, instead of, and instead of collecting medals on the wall that can be seen for all to display to say, you know, this kind of primate, look at me when I've amassed or look what I've become. It's more about mugs. You know, I've I've transferred from medals to mugs, from hard work and dedication to mugs and coffee and tea and conversation that helps me lift and strengthen in a different way. You know, I've transferred strength from the- That's beautiful. You know, from the gym- to be able to help lift others. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a different type of weight. It's a different type of lifting. It's a different sense of accomplishment and achievement. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love that. And so, I mean, and if I, and I know that this 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 particular podcast is, I mean, the the the, the you know, Marks was video as well. Mm-hmm. This one is just audio. So for the sake of the people that are listening on Spotify, uh, wherever you get your podcast, you know, that whole quote, um, you know, I encourage you to check out um, Leroy's Instagram. He is larger than life. He is he is a, a mountain of a man, but he's also like you were very much kind of like a gentle giant. You're, 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 you're inquisitive, you're intelligent, you're very well-spoken, you know? And I think that's also, it's also very, very 
important, I think, and and just to, to talk to talk about your character is that you know you're very much like a Renaissance man. You you were you're you're strong, you know, physically, but you're also strong mentally and 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 emotionally. And I think that that's that speaks volumes of you. Um, you know, when you um, truthfully, like when 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 I reached out to you over IG, man, I was just like, holy crap! Like Leroy, he said yes. All right, score. I was super excited to work with you because, I mean, you just have such a you're, you're just so great and so so insightful. Um, so you know, thank you for for sharing that. Um, and you know, in terms of in terms of you know going back and talking more about like you know you you mentioned the records and stuff. What what are, what are those records? I mean, just so that the listeners, if they're not if they don't if they're not um, you know aware of what you've, what you've done, what you've accomplished. I think it's important that I know we're going from metals, you know, to mugs back to metals yeah. here, but you know, can you, can you speak a little bit about like, and share kind of what you've, I mean, yeah, I think who, I think who we're listening to right now. Cause I mean, you're a legend, man. Um, started, you know, I think my first, that was my first. I think I first really started competing competitive bench when I was 18. I went to a competition at, and, uh, for these, I know it's it's so much harder to compete and do whether it's deadlift, squat, bench press, any of that stuff in a in a organizational setting because it's not a gym lift, it's not touch right. and go, it's so much more controlled. Um, and to me, it's just really controlled chaos. So I think at eighteen, I did like a four eighty five. At nineteen, I did my first drug free uh, five hundred bench. Um, I want to say two thousand twelve ish was my first time going you know over 600 pounds raw which at the time I and think there was bench. bench press yeah i think there was at the time there's only um less than 20 or 25 people that ever hit that number in competition and then it went up to 650 and then 675 which i think put me on you know the top 10 i think till this day it's still the top 10 in the world all time um had a couple goes at 700 didn't happen in bench press world that's the that's the coveted excuse me, numbers, everybody wants to get to 700 pounds. More people have walked on the moon than have ever bench pressed 700 pounds raw in competition. So it's it's a massive. So it's a very, very yeah, small return. Yeah, it's very, very f- small. Um, and, and, it's, and it's one of those things like in the powerlifting world, I'll get the, oh, you haven't hit 700 pounds. And then, you know, for the people, everybody else is impressed. But amongst my peers, you know, it's you never – you never get the hate or the criticism from from the most upper level peers. Mm-hmm. It's always the people who they're they're gonna hate on what they gave up on, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's where a lot of that comes from. As far as strict curl, um, that was something I kind of started dabbling in as the powerlifting, you know, kind of to subdue itself. Um, set a world record of that. I think in less than a year. So it was it was fun to go from something I've never ever done, even in the gym, never worked biceps, and then I just. You know, one of my friends was like, oh, that's low-hanging fruit. You can get to that number. So I was like, okay. So first I saw the American record was 225. And I said, okay, I'm going to break this record. Then I got to 225. I was like, okay, you know, the world record's only that's like. curl. Yeah. It's like, and it's it's one of those people that, um, strict curls, you have to get against the wall. You have to be almost motionless and, you know, just strict curl at your back and your butt has to stay against the wall and you have to curl it. Then you have to go. There's all these commands. You have to wear a singlet. I mean, it's it's tough. Um, and so I was able to accomplish that. And it was more, it was more so I had this chip on my, sh- it was, I still had, I, and I hate living with regrets. I had regrets from not getting to 700. That was always something I was passionate about, something I wanted to do. Just had injuries and, you know, just father time wasn't on my side. So it's just something I didn't accomplish. And then with the, the strict curl, I was like, you know what? I can be one of the best in the world at this. Um, and as far as deadlift or squat. So what was the number on curl? 251. 251 yeah curl yeah one one arm uh two i mean it's it's two arms oh it's two arms yeah yeah yeah. so with one arm i mean what do you do with like one arm i think uh one arm i've been able to bench press uh 315 pounds one arm bench press yeah what about curl uh i've never really tried to curl one arm I've done I've done a lot of st- people call it gym fuckery stuff, but I've just never felt. Gym I think the most I think a hundred <laughs> something pounds. One I've just never felt a lot. A lot of the gym fuckery. Here's here's what happened. Let me explain gym fuckery. Gym fuckery, or 
what people would call ego lifting is any lift that just doesn't make sense. Like, oh, you're doing that because of your ego or it's too hard. But a lot of the, the stuff comes from trying to find a sports-specific reason to do that particular movement. Like at the time, I had there was I had an imbalance. I had a slight injury. So at the time, I was really training, you know, individual dumbbells. And then a friend's like, hey, you could probably bench press that. So so long. So after some working stuff out, then became, you know, oh, let me see how much I can do this with one arm. So there was a sports-specific need. But then to the rest of the world, it doesn't make sense because who bench presses with one arm? You know, who goes out there and tries to curl 200 pounds? It's, you know, people like, how many, what do you need to lift a car? What do you have this? And for me, the need was always. Which I'm totally, yeah. I totally believe you could. The need to get strong, you know, had, had came from, like we talked about earlier, it came from this need to become stronger, to not catch an ass whooping from my dad. So the sports specific of needing to become stronger was to not catch ass whooping. But to other people, they're like, you know, who needs to lift that much weight? Well, I needed to, because if it wasn't this, it was something else. We all have our vices. We all have something yeah, that, yeah, yeah. that we're yeah. going to become addicted to. I just happened to find healthy addictions or at least yeah. what I call healthy. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if, 700 pounds is, is healthy, man. <laughs> like that is, that is yeah. out of control. Yeah. But it's one of those things. I, I don't think there's, there's, there's definitely, you know, when it comes to anything, there's no buy the book. And that's something no, that's, a, that's what I encounter the most is. Well, well especially, it's, this, especially when you're carving the path, like you are, man, yeah. you're, you're setting records here. Yeah. Especially, but it's, it, I will say this, it's only at the top. I'm sure the, the person who first climbed Mount Everest, there was no like, Hey, let me call so-and-so and ask them how they did. Right. When I was going on that journey to 700 pounds, um, and, you know, and you've heard yeah, Mark McGuire talk about this, you know, on his way to, you know, going for the home right. When you're, when you're in uncharted territory, it's so lonely because all you have out there is skepticism and cynicism of people that don't want to see you succeed. Right. Or they question everything you do. Well, you should do it this night. And to me, I'm like, if I did everything the way you're saying to do it, then I'd be like you. And no offense, but the results you're speaking to me of, the the numbers that you come to me with, you're not in a situation I want to be in. Yeah, you're doing a lot of other things great, but this area you're trying to coach me and give me advice in. Nobody's it, done. It, it, it's one, nobody's done it, and you're not even doing it well. That's right. like, you don't even fucking listen to your own advice. Why would I listen to you? Right. You know what I mean? If I'm going to listen to someone, I'm going to listen to someone who's at least been closer or at least yeah. attempted it before I just listen to you because you're being negative. And, and that you got to have a strong sense of who you are mm -hmm. to go with that approach because so many people are going to label you. And I'm, I'm talking this across the board. This is one of those things I paid for it. When you're in uncharted territory and you don't respond and agree with your skeptics, they're going to label you as arrogant. They're going to label you as, you know, not being able to take, um, constructive criticism, but, mm -hmm. but more so you got to have a belief in your ability. You have to believe in the grind. You got to believe in, you know, being able to persevere because, and I, and I tell this to a lot of my clients, I call it the rule of 99 versus one. If 99 people have done it a certain way and haven't got the results, but you're about to get those results or you've gotten those results, then remain in that 1% because it's, it's gotten you there. It might not be the most orthodox. It might not be this or that. You know, we can look at that time and time again through um, look how many times Michael Jordan got cut from the basketball team. Look how many other jobs Oprah or anybody successful had to take on or endure or how many times they were cut or canceled before they ended up being who they are. And it's not that they knew the right way. It's not that they had a handout. It's just they had this undying need to just not give up on themselves. Holy shit. That's that's great. See, this is the reason why I wanted to have these types of conversations is because this is the exact this is the exact type of conversation I wish I would have had when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. You know, those types of those types of really deep conversations that kind of like, you know, uh, just kind of like open up a different mindset. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, for for me, uh, so going back, Coach Holt. Got in the gym for, you know, uh, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, started, start, you know, started lifting and stuff like that. We didn't even have power lifting until I think I was in uh, like a uh, freshman in high school or something. 
And um, I remember, I remember having that conversation, having a conversation with my mom and I was like, you know, you know, it's seven in the morning, you know, we, you know, wake up mom, we, you know, you got to drive me over to the gym, you know? So, you know, I, I've got a, I've got a session with, with coach and, you know, and, and, and she said, you know, I, I remember vividly, she said to me, she goes, um, you know, you know, why are you, why are you lifting? Like, why are you going to the gym? Why, why are you doing these things? Cause if you start building muscle, then you're going to have to do that the rest of your life because it's all going to turn flabby. Like you, you, why do you want to, why do you want to, like, what do you want to do that? It's something it's going to, it's going to be a habit that, that kind of stuff. And, and I listened and I stopped doing that stuff. And I never, every time I go to the gym, I have that mental block of like that, that thought, you know? And so like, to your point, it's about kind of, kind of breaking through those, 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 uh, those mental blocks and, and, and kind of like carving your own path, you know, that 99 to one, you know? So I, I love that, man. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's important to just, you just got to believe in yourself. You know what I mean? And along the ways, you might come up with different formulations, different strategies, but as long as you feel the need to just keep persevering, just keep on keeping on, eventually you'll get there. And 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 here's and what I think people have to understand too is, is your willingness to persevere and continue the grind it doesn't, it doesn't change your destination. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Cause I yeah. think so many people, they say, I need to get from point A to point B and everything has to just be able to get to, you know, to point B, your point B might change. It might be B, it might be 1.2. It might be 1.5. It might be something else. Keep stay on the path, but don't get so caught up in where the, the have a strong sense of where you want to go. But you might do this podcast and you and it might you might come to uh, affirmation or some awakening someday like, hey, I love doing this, but it's also opened up this. Right. Door. Yeah. You know what I mean? And just, be, just allowing yourself to be open to these different ideals because we're all just on borrowed time. We're all it's, yeah. it's someone else's plan. We just have to be willing to put in the work to get Ooh, there. life is precious. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and going back to what you mentioned earlier about like kind of like. Getting to the um, getting to the point, right? You know, because I mean, we're both in our forties, and it, we're kind of getting to the point where you know it, it, we we're starting to realize that it's it's important to give back, and it's important to 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 share to capture and share those stories, so that way there's you know so it's easier, and so that we we can you know make a difference in somebody else's life, whoever that might be. Yeah. Well, yeah. we also we learn twice. You know, you teach, yeah. you learn twice. Yeah, that's, that's part of it. Yeah, so. I never thought of it like that. Yeah. I know we went on on a tangent, but uh, you know we we started to talk about deadlift, and we started to talk about those others. What what are those What are those records like? Um, I, I've never competed, you know, in a comp, full competition to do squat and deadlift. It's always something that I've liked. Yeah, something I maintain. I just didn't feel a need to do to compete in that specific. Yeah, to compete in all three, and and I get a lot of flack from that from other powerlifters, you know. But I'm like, it is what it is. You're specialist. Yeah, specialist. But I, but that's I think that's the world we live in. It's so funny. Like, people want to put everybody in this category. Like, oh, if you don't do all three, then you're not a true powerlifter. But mm. when when we look at in the world of in the world of powerlifting, you know what I mean? You look at the, what someone is famous for. You know, like, people, people know Thor as a great deadlifter. I don't think people really care what his bench or his squat is. Mm-hmm. He's done full powerlifting, but he's always going to be remembered as what he did in his deadlift. Right. You know, I could go down the list of people who aren't necessarily specialists, but they're always going to be remembered for their primary lift that they were, ex- you know, excelled in. Right. And it's just be able just to, you know, know your why. And that's what it is. I mean, I'm always going to, you're always going to get criticism from, you know, someone somewhere. Yeah. But as long as you are true to yourself and you know your why, that's all that really matters. That's great. Well, cool, man. Um, I know you've. Uh, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but uh, no, it's been a pleasure to be on here. Yeah, thank you so much. This is this has been fantastic. Uh, just talking to you is so great. You know, you're you're. I I almost feel I almost feel like I have to put a microphone in front of you to actually talk. Sometimes I'm just just quiet guy. Yeah, I just yeah. But if a mic's in front of you, you you, you open up and you start to shine. I think. Yeah. I think that's what it is. 
You've been great, man. Thank you so much, Leroy. And um, thanks for sharing. And uh, this has been The Learning Man with uh, Leroy, the legend, the machine, Walker. Thank you. Thanks so much. And thank you so much for listening to The Learning Man Podcast. My name is Omar Cantu. I could not thank you enough for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed what you heard and would like some more of that content, we're going to be dropping new episodes every Friday. So make sure and hit that follow button wherever you listen to your podcast and write us a review because it really does help the channel. Share what topic you want to tackle next or maybe the name of a guest that you want to hear from. Thank you again for joining in this journey. It means so much to me. 